This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Greetings there, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Happy Monday. And a happy Monday to you as well. How are things? Life is good. Yesterday was Mother's Day. Had a great day celebrating my wife and my mom. Except I didn't actually call my mom, so I feel a little bit guilty about that. So, Mom, if you're listening, I apologize, and I still love you. I'll see you this week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a very important and very gracious thing to say. I will confess that this was my first motherless day, Uh, so that's a bit of a change in in life. It was very weird in the couple of weeks, speaking of not exactly cyber traps, but kind of how cyber stuff can play out. I was getting all of these promotional emails, of course, for Mother's Day, and it was actually, yeah, it felt a little weird. Um, you know, not, not the marketer's fault. They're casting a broad net, but yeah. Yeah. But you know, if they were harvesting your data more effectively, they would know that your mother had recently <laughs> passed and they shouldn't even be saying anything. 
So <laughs> yes, yes. So I, well, and we've talked about that. Maybe that is the future in which we are headed. But I, uh, I am sure it is, Fred. Despite <laughs> our best efforts, I am sure that that is ex- exactly what is going to happen. Well, and and we're going to have a full conversation today about how some of that is taking place. Yes. Well, that is very exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not exciting in in the way that we most people think, but exciting to us because this is such a fascinating topic. So here's the story. On December 28th, 2021, Illuminate Education was hacked, and it lasted until January 8th, so about two weeks, and it compromised the data of nearly 1 million students in New York State that we know about. <laughs> and, yeah, right. and this is what... We just have to highlight this, that whenever there's a data breach, we never know how honest the company is being and how much it it really is saying. And I remember there was some Facebook hack, I believe, a while ago where they said like two million user accounts were compromised. And then later they revised the number to say, actually, it was more like 10 million, but the news had already died down. So it wasn't as big a deal. And then it happened again. A couple of years later, I need to find sources for that and not call out Facebook because it may not have been Facebook. But there was some some sort of thing like that where it was like, at first they say it's hardly any, and then they say, oh, yeah, it was <laughs> 10 times as much as we thought it was. Um, having researched in this area a fair amount, it's always okay to reference Facebook because <laughs> <That's> und- <right. laughs> undoubtedly, it's at least partially true what you're yes. saying. So I'm I'm not too worried about our you know yeah takedown notice from <laughs> Facebook right now. But but that's actually a really good point, and we'll dig into that a little bit later in the show in terms of how Illuminate Education responded to this particular incident because that is important both from a parenting and school administrating perspective, but also from a policy uh, perspective in terms of how we deal with these things. But I think we should back up a little bit, talk a bit about who these people are, what this company is, and why we're paying any attention to it on this show. Yeah. So uh, first of all, they're a California, Irvine, California-based ed tech company that has a whole bunch of different systems, as these typically do. Uh, Schedula, IO Classroom, um, Pupil Path, and EduClimber are all products that they that they use. And as we're seeing with ed tech companies in the education space, this is, you know, they're becoming more and more conglomerations of mm-hmm. getting all the tools you can, so that they're a one-stop shop. Um, so I want to read a couple things from their website. Um, they say our solution brings together holistic data and collaborative instructional tools and puts them in the hands of educators so that they can visualize student progress, determine the right instructional or interventional strategy, and take the best next action moment by moment. Great marketing speak. It's good. <laughs> and so, they, so you're right. So you're on the front lines of this stuff. You've got to break this down for us. Like, so actually the first background question is, had you heard of this company before we started working on this show? Um, I had heard of them, but had never used any of their products or okay. anything like that. So, but, that, you, but you've seen marketing stuff like this from a bunch of companies. Oh yes. I mean, this could describe just about every tool that is out there, every ed tech tool. And what everybody wants to get to is figuring out what you need to do to help a kid learn the most in the moment. 
and the great promise of artificial intelligence in ed tech tools is that they will they will essentially eliminate the need for a teacher because the AI tools will just take the kids through this whole thing. Now, if all you want to do is, as they say on their website, is move the student performance needle and that's it, then that's all fine and dandy, except that nobody will ever be able to replace the real things that a teacher does. And teachers who are afraid of, you know, automation taking over, you know, they don't need to be if they are doing the things that real great teachers do, which is empathy, care, concern, consideration, understanding what a kid needs in the moment because of their nonverbal and unsaid things that they're expressing. Those are the things that can't be replaced. But every ed tech company out there is trying to replace all the other stuff that a teacher does. The, the assigning, the grading, the measurement, all of that. And there are several of those things that we absolutely should turn over to AI or ed tech because it makes it so much better and easier and allows the teacher to spend the time they need to on doing those other things that computers just can't replicate. So, Well, this has been the argument for the introduction of technology for the last half century or more, that you're going to take the mechanical pieces of our lives and allow you know, machines to handle that and therefore free up, supposedly, human beings to do the you know, more creative, more kind of high-level work, um, arguably like empathy like compassion, mm -hmm. like awareness of, you know, uh, a child's particular needs and socialization, which, you know, if you really talk to the enthusiastic AI people, they think AI will get yes. to that as well, <laughs> but not anytime soon, um, science fiction notwithstanding. So we've got a company then that has managed to persuade over 5,000 schools to use its platforms it collects data on 17 million students. Well, what are the risks associated yeah. with that? <laughs> yeah, they are large. And, and one thing you put in the notes is that it um, it is an approved vendor for the state of New York, um, which is an interesting thing because uh, you put here in quotes that it was rigorously reviewed. Now, I am an approved vendor for uh, New York City Department of Education, which is you know, a very large school system. And the the way that I was became an approved vendor was that I basically said, here's what I do and who I am and here's my website. So mm -hmm. the rigorously reviewed part, I think we need to start there and question whether or not these there are safeguards in place at a systemic level to ensure that data privacy is... Um, is maintained and that schools are, are using tools that that do respect that and implement measures to ensure that it's that it's actually going to make a difference. Well, and I, I think that's definitely going to be part of our conclusory comments about what what policies or changes do we need. Um, I, I guess I would suggest because and the fact that you're a vendor here is interesting that you were not making any representations about collecting or storing student data. And I, I could imagine, and I would certainly hope that the state's Department of Education IT department 
would dig much more deeply into a company that was actually going to try to collect this information. And as a matter of fact, under New York law, and by the way, just as a side note, we're, we're focusing on New York here, not because I live here, but because um, New York is where the bulk of the students are who were affected by this breach of data. So this is at least for the moment, very much a New York story. But as I was saying, New York does have a statutory requirement for any company that collects student data like this. I love this phrasing that whenever the data is at rest or is moving, it needs to be encrypted. So what they're basically talking about is whenever it's stored on the company's servers, they have to encrypt it. And it needs to have end-to-end -end encryption from the school to the company to make sure that it's safe in transmission. And the problem appears to have been, and there are ongoing investigations, but the problem appears to have been that illuminated um, excuse <laughs> yeah, illuminate and not illuminated. Illuminate education um, was not particularly thorough in their encryption. So that when the breach occurred, the hackers were able to get access to unencrypted information. Yeah, so let me share uh, my screen here real quick. And if you're just listening later, don't worry, I will read through what you see here on the screen. But there are, this is the Illuminate Education's website and they have, and this is the, um, the privacy portion of it. So we have security, student data, and privacy policy as headings. And I just want to read the words on here because they don't exactly instill confidence that they are going to be secure with data. So we protect data like it's our own. In alignment with the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, we deploy meaningful safeguards to protect student data. Okay, so that's fine. Meaningful, that's a questionable word in my mind, um, but whatever. Uh, student data, we pledge our unwavering commitment to student data privacy. And then they are part of this thing that's called the Student Privacy Pledge, um, which is a website, studentprivacypledge.org. And when you go to that, then it tells you what it is, what they commit to do, and what they commit not to do. Um, and so that's, that's good. I think ed tech companies should be part of that and, and should, um, should ad adhere to those standards and then privacy policy. This one is where I'm really concerned. We aim to give educators confidence that all your data remains secure. Once you use our site and services. Now, the words that I'm concerned about are aim and giving educators confidence. Those are not good words in my mind for instilling <laughs> confidence in what you're doing with privacy. Your well, thoughts? They're, not they're, they're not particularly um, absolute, shall we say. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're really, I think, and look, I'm an attorney, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm happily not practicing on a daily basis, but I will tell you that um, those are very legalistic words that were carefully chosen as part of this website. And they are very specifically avoiding a cast iron guarantee that the data will remain secure. Yeah. And, and that I think is definitely a strategic thing to do. And you can't, you know, you can't 100% guarantee that I get that but I feel like a little more confidence in your ability would be, would be warranted. If you're dealing with that many student 
data, don't you think? Well, and, and right, exactly. And it's not merely the number of students, right? It's the kind of data that was being or is being collected by this company, collected and stored by this company. So um, as you alluded to, the schools that use Illuminate Education are tracking grades. They're using it for attendance records. They um, have a communication platform built into their services. Um, some schools actually used it for contact tracing back when folks were trying to figure out who had been exposed to COVID-19 and so forth. So um, that's a lot of important data. And as a matter of fact, when we look at what was actually taken from the database in question, it gets even more concerning. But um, yeah, if you're pulling down $5 million a year or more from New York State alone, that I think comes with a pretty heavy obligation to make sure that all your ducks are in you know, a row mm -hmm. in terms of protecting this information. Yeah. So why don't you tell us what data was compromised? Because I think this is super fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And, and this is the weekly shout out, uh, Jethro, to our listeners to check out the resources section of our show notes, because I threw a bunch of stuff in there of people who have been analyzing what's going on. Um, and at, actually, at the very top, I do want to uh, remind people or let people know that we'll be talking about the notification requirements and responses by parents. There are some great websites from the New York uh, State Department of Ed and the Federal Trade Commission for reasons we'll get into in a minute. In any case, during the course of the investigation, what they have uncovered so far is that hackers had unencrypted access to, among other things, names of students, their birthdays, their ethnicities, their home languages, so whether or not English was their primary or secondary language, what have you, um, student ID numbers for both current and former students going back as far as six years, which is really shocking. Uh, the identities of special ed students, which raises all kinds of implications in terms of marketing and, and so forth, um, class and teacher schedules, and then the identities of those receiving free lunch. And that's just from a cursory read of these right. documents. So it could actually be even more extensive than that, because the thing is that um, this company, Illuminate, does not have a citywide or a statewide contract, which might raise some interesting oversight possibilities if they did. But instead, as an approved vendor, it allows it or that allows each school to make a decision about whether or not to use this company. And then the schools make a decision about what kind of information they want tracked and analyzed and so forth. So, you know, you would not necessarily see the same <clears throat> level of data breach from each school. Well, depending and this on is how they use it. Yeah. it. This is what is so fascinating. So every school has to have a student information system. Uh, and what that means is that that is where that is the record of all of your students. That is, that is what is considered, um, the, the thing that you have to retain for so long, what's where transcripts are stored, like everything goes into the student information system. Then school districts partner with ed tech companies and give them access to specific pieces of data within that. Now, for things like multi-tiered systems of supports or response to intervention that we talked about a little bit earlier, what do we do mm -hmm. next with this particular student? Having things like ethnicity 
and free or reduced lunch status make it really handy for reporting later on that you're doing things and showing improvement in these specific subgroups. And so, you know, not to be too nerdy, but going back to um, (laughs) No Child Left Behind, the really great thing that happened with No Child Left Behind is that we started looking at disaggregated um, student performance. So instead of just saying, our school passes 80% of our students or 80% are proficient on the state test, we started looking at subgroups. And this became a really important thing. So we look at different ethnicities, free and reduced lunch, those kinds of things. And we try to examine whether or not we're making improvements in those particular areas. Now, mm-hmm. if, if Illuminate Education doesn't have access to those things, all the efforts that you're going through in your school to make that happen don't always transfer back to your student information system. And the student information system is typically this big behemoth that is just full of data. <laughs> it's this huge database that has everything in there. And there is very little emphasis on visualizing that data, which is why schools often need companies like Illuminate to say, here's here's what your data actually says. Because it's tough to look at a spreadsheet of 2,000 kids and say, this is what's happening. Much easier to look at a graph and say, 95% of our African-American students are proficient, whereas five years ago, only 30% of our African-American students were proficient. That makes a big difference in mm-hmm. uh, in funding, in getting grants, in uh, just basic performance of your school, and knowing who's doing well and who's not. Well, and you want to tailor education as as closely as you can to the specific needs of the learner. And so analysis like that is crucial. I I completely understand that. Yeah. And so that's why a company like this needs all of that information Um, Mm. because you need to be able to see whether or not what you're doing is working. And that's, that's the whole point, right? (laughs) We want kids (laughs) to learn. And so this is, this is a challenging thing because you have to decide how much information you're giving them. Um, and all of these things are connected to specific students. And so there's not any anonymized yeah, right. information right. here. It What the hackers got was basically, think of it like this, a line with the starting with a student, identif- student ID number, then every single aspect about that kid going down that one next line. At, right. Now, and, and, and let me just toss in, because I think this is important for people to, to really think about, which is that there's a very strong correlation between the amount of data you collect and the potential utility and, and the, um, the deafness with which a school can provide individualized instruction. And there's that trade-off because the other correlation is the more data you collect, the higher the risk is if something goes wrong like this. Yeah. So the the good thing is, is that the parent information was probably not connected to the students because mm-hmm. that's not needed. That stays in the student information system and parent information likely doesn't need to go out to this other entity unless we're talking about maybe doing something like contact tracing and being able to notify the parents as Illuminate Ed did. So it's, right, it seems pretty clear they did have at least some parental information in there. Yeah, so typically you wouldn't, but then this COVID-19 thing 
threw in this wrench that maybe we do need to be outsourcing this kind of communication to these other entities. And, yeah, interesting. and so it, it really complicates it because when the parents are matched, then you get this whole other treasure trove of information that you may not have access to someplace else. So I can see how it'd be very, it would be very uh, appealing to a hacker to get all these other demographics of parents and even the free and reduced lunch thing, that is basically if you make less than a certain amount, then you get free lunch. And so mm-hmm. you can basically filter out every parent who doesn't have a kid on free and reduced lunch and know that they make at least a certain amount of money per year and go up from there. Really just yeah. some fascinating things to think through. Well, and and I, I will talk about some of the potential risks in a minute, but there, you know, there are some uses for this data which are independent of the actual financial resources of the parents. Because Absolutely. you can you you can inflict harm on a child regardless of how much money their their parents may have, but let's talk a little bit more about the impact of a breach like this on a school system that is using a platform like a Pupil Path or a Scheduler or something like that. So it's the end of the year, right? Right before Christmas break or even in the middle of Christmas break. And all of a sudden your scheduling platform or your grading platform crashes and burns. I mean, what, what impact does that have on a school? Oh my gosh. That's a nightmare. Yeah. I I can't think of many things more disruptive than that. That 95% of school is the schedule (laughs) and, (laughs) and people fall apart literally when the schedule is, is changed or different or not there. And so this is, Just that impact of it is a very, very big deal on a day-to-day basis. And it is nearly impossible to recreate that by hand and to just go in and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I mean, it is extremely, extremely challenging because you've got kids just sitting around not knowing where to go. And what do kids (laughs) do when they're sitting around not knowing where to go and they're bored? They start causing mischief and everybody gets stressed out and... You know, they, they start being kids. They start being kids. <laughs> so that's a really big deal. And that that would be so, so damaging and so frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Well, this brings us to the issue of notification, right? So there's, there's a little bit of ambiguity about how all, all of this unfolded. But you've got a situation where these services disappeared. You know, they basically had to be shut down. And then was some suggestion that it might've been a ransomware situation where the company itself couldn't necessarily get access to the data. Um, I, I didn't really dig too deeply into that, but the more significant point is that these vendors have an obligation, you know, certainly under New York law, and I think under most other states, to report when there's been some kind of security lapse involving the personal, personal identifying information of students. And New York State reported that it took Illuminate two months to, quote unquote, formally notify the state that this had happened. Now, to be fair to the company, um, that could be because the Federal Bureau of Investigation asked them to withhold certain information as part of, you know, to protect the investigation. Um, The more nefarious interpretation is that they wanted to minimize the chances of litigation or bad publicity which we're clearly blowing up today. <laughs> um, but, but 
you know, that it, this is a constant tension that I've observed over the last 20 years that, you know, when hackers get into a company or a school, does that organization report what happened? And one of our challenges in combating hacking is that companies are so reluctant to share what's going on when they actually get breached. And I'm not sure I know what the correct answer is. Unfortunately, some companies may simply need to be forced to mm-hmm. do this thing they don't really want to do. Yeah, and it, it could t- it could have also taken um, two months to notify because if it was a ransomware, they could have been negotiating and trying to right. figure Fair out point. and maybe they needed to devote all their resources to getting taking care of the schools and getting them back online and you know i think there are there are plenty of reasons why it would it would make sense that they would delay notification maybe they weren't sure that the hack was completely resolved and so you know they don't want to say this is going on until it's resolved you know i can think of a lot of reasons why someone would wait but the fact that it's being investigated by the department of education the fbi the police department and the New York state attorney general, like all of those things are certainly cause for alarm on, on the part of the, <laughs> of the ed tech company, which is definitely, you know, I certainly wouldn't want all those people investigating me just no, I, for yeah, the stress I, of it. <laughs> you know? Well, and I've had a chance to watch our attorney general, Letitia James in, in action here in New York state. And yeah, you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end for right. attention from a legal perspective. And I, I, I guess I hear everything you're saying, right? I, I totally understand. There's, there's a lot of competing forces that come into play when something like this happens. The problem, and one of the reasons I think we need to nudge companies to be more transparent, is that parents have some time-sensitive things they need to do. If there's a risk that their children's information has been compromised, and the very specific risk to which I'm alluding is the idea of identity theft and and financial uh, posturing on the part of some hacker. And people kind of you know, scoff or or maybe joke about the idea that, you know, some three-year-old or six-year-old's identity is going to be used to open a credit card account or something like that, but it quite literally can be. And that there are plenty of individuals and tools on the dark web who will try to make that happen. So those, you know, the longer a breach goes unreported, the more likely that is. And the, you know, the parents are missing that opportunity to protect the financial future of their children. Well, and this is a really challenging thing because as parents, you're not thinking of your child's identity being stolen and you're not like anticipating and planning on that happening. And so you don't do simple things that could deal with that, like putting a credit lock on your children's social security numbers, which is something that we've mentioned on this podcast before and definitely something that you that you should do. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that when these breaches happen, it's a, it's easy to ignore them and to think that, okay, this doesn't really apply to me because my kid's social security number is not in there. But that doesn't mean that it can't be correlated with other data or, you know, that mm-hmm. people are, aren't opening um, 
credit cards on random <laughs> numbers and names and, and hoping they hit the jackpot. So being able to put a freeze or a lock on it is is really important. And then also, usually these come with some sort of credit monitoring thing for some period of time that some insurance company is probably paying for, you know. <laughs> or the or or the company itself. I mean, Illuminate stepped up and, and made that available to all of the people affected by this breach. So that's good. Um, you know, I will say that the credit monitoring companies rake it in because yeah. every time it's a data breach, they get another huge infusion of cash from, right. you know, whoever was responsible. But, um, you know, that's, that I think is, is really important to underscore. People get a lot of these notifications from schools and they get a lot of this, you know, information about how to respond or how to handle things after there's been a data breach. And it's tempting to ignore it and it is time consuming to do, but it's really important to take those basic steps. Like you're saying, the credit lock, uh, signing up for the credit monitoring. Those are just basic routine things that you should do. And then beyond that, there's a handful of other things that are worthwhile to think about, which is a number of the security experts who were interviewed in the articles related to this breach in specific uh, talked about the fact that parents should change their kids' passwords and user IDs, uh, not just on the school system and the vendor's uh, data portal, but elsewhere as well, to minimize the chance that any of the information that's contained in the school information system could be correlated to other accounts that the child has. So for instance, you don't wanna run the risk that there's some information there that would enable somebody to get into their Instagram account or their Facebook account or something like that. You know, again, the, the, excuse me, the potential for impersonation um, may not be that great, but what if your child's Instagram account gets trashed right before they're applying for college or something like that? So, you know, you can think of different scenarios where this would not be a good thing. Mm -hmm. For sure. And the other thing is that that is really frustrating from a parent's perspective is that you pretty much have no, no say in what companies the school district is contracting with. Right. Right. And so like if, if this, let's say, uh, hopefully this doesn't happen, but let's say that Illuminate just continues to have all these data breaches, but they continue selling their product to all these school districts and the parents may be very conscious about their own privacy and their children's privacy, but the school district is not going to go to the parents and say, hey, do you think we should use this company? Because they're just going to make that administrative decision. As right. well, they should. And we want them to make good decisions for us and not bother us with every little thing. But you as a parent don't really have a lot of say in what companies your school district is using. And so you just basically have to go along with it and hope that they're doing the diligence they need to to ensure that that doesn't happen. Well, that's a huge piece of it, right? So in, in terms of the suggestions we would offer to school administrators, obviously really doing a good vetting job and not necessarily relying on the state, right? So here's the thing. The state did some vetting of Illuminate Education, but I think individual schools now would be well advised to do a basic Google search of the companies that they are planning on working with. And it's very simple. Put in the name of the company and 
data breach yeah. and see if, see if anything comes up. Because at the very least, that's going to give you some important questions to ask during the vendor retention process. You, you, you really have an obligation to your students and to your parents to do that. Beyond that, you know, I think one of the things that was really interesting was reading all of the comments from administrators and teachers, Jethro, about how much trouble they were having functioning as a school when this stuff shut down. So to the extent that you can do so, figuring out a backup system that is in place and that people use. Now, I know you don't want to add layers of complexity. I hear your thoughts. Yes, <laughs> you read my mind. It's amazing. I understand that. But I think what we're getting to is this question of what aspects of the information collection environment are mission critical and what are not. So if schedule is mission critical, then, you know, just like those poor guys in Apollo 13, you need a second, you need a backup system that's going to let you get home at the end of the day. Yeah, you need. So what that the way that I would say that simply is that <laughs> before you go on Christmas break, you print out a hard copy of everybody's schedule as and grades and grades so that you have that there ready to go so that if something does happen over the break, then you, you have something that you can do on the first day back. I mean, that is a very low tech, very simple way to do it. That is a smart thing to do anyway and, you know, if if nothing happens, then that's great. And you've used a couple hundred reams of paper <laughs> to do that. But, <laughs> but, like, it's important to have those things in place. And sometimes things, you know, there was, um, it, there can be disasters like flooding, freezing, snow, tornadoes, whatever. Those things can happen uh, over a break. And when everybody's away and not paying attention, you know, they... They may not have a chance to get back to fix it until the first day of school anyway. And that's right. Those are just but natural occurrences that are more common than we think. I, I think that's really good advice in an effort to keep the environmental lobby from uh, crawling <laughs> all over our back. I will say that there are plenty of ways to, to produce and store PDFs of all of the information yes. you're referring to. <laughs> so you don't even need to burn a Christmas tree to do this. Right. But look, it. We've talked about, you know, the vetting that schools need to do, the kind of basic thinking ahead of different scenarios. One of the things I always like to remind school administrators of, and particularly the IT department, is that there's an obligation to make sure your own security house is in order. Mm -hmm. um, because you don't want to be in the position of kind of living in a glass security house and throwing stones at somebody. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're collecting data as a school and you almost inevitably are, yes, then absolutely. you have an obligation to install security patches, make sure that you're up to speed on the latest anti malware and antivirus systems and so forth. Educate your staff about phishing things and mm -hmm. and other kinds of intrusion attacks. Make sure you have good physical security for your devices um, and then one of the things actually that, that I've learned about up here are the um, collaborative educational systems that the state has where different school districts will get together 
And instead of having, you know, one IT person, maybe eight or 10 or 15 schools will get together and have a real IT department that they all share. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful way to share cybersecurity resources. And then the last thing I think um, people should never lose sight of is just how much free material there is for cybersecurity um, coming from uh, nonprofit organizations, from the states, from the federal government. If you're a school, there's no excuse not to be up to speed on, on this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the last thing I would say is think about what you what data you're collecting and whether or not you actually need to be collecting that data. Some things are required for state and federal reporting. Some things are not necessary. And to really simplify this, I'll go all the way back to when I was a teacher. And I had one teacher who said, you need to record every single assignment and put it all in the grade book and make sure that kids see what's been turned in, what's been graded, all that. My philosophy was different. I said, I'm only putting the assessments into the grade book, nothing else. All that matters to me is how kids, how they perform on these things, their homework, all that other stuff. It just mm -hmm. doesn't matter. And so I only put in the assessments and that was it. And I did it in a way to ensure that, that it was clear how well kids were doing because that's what really mattered. And so just because you give a, a, a little slip of paper to exit the classroom and write down your thoughts doesn't mean that that has to go in the grade book also. And I know <laughs> teachers who do that. I personally don't understand it, but that's just because the data exists doesn't mean that you have to collect it, analyze it and send it off to a third party. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting philosophical thing. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you with respect to the schools and so forth. Um, the, the philosophical piece I guess I'm getting at is that by its very nature, technology drives the collection of data, exactly. both, both the collection and the production of it. You know, we, we are generating, what, a, exabytes, I think is the most recent level of storage capacity. I mean, that's like gigabyte, a petabyte is a thousand times a gigabyte, an exabyte is a thousand times a petabyte. I mean, the volume of data we are creating as human beings is absolutely staggering. And it is such a temptation for companies that handle data to simply scoop that all up because, you know, there's this old Roman saying, scientia es potentia, knowledge is power. And mm -hmm. there's a feeling on the part of these companies that the more data they have, the more power they have. And there's some truth to that. And I think that's the philosophical conundrum we face. Like, how do we turn the spigot off? Yeah, it's... And I think we need to do it with our kids first, you know? Yeah. Don't collect all that data. Yeah, it, it's true. And you, you mentioned here in the notes, the very last thing is the price of digital data is eternal vigilance. And that's really <laughs> the takeaway is that you have to be vigilant if you're going to do something with all this if you're going to collect all this data and if you're not collecting the data, then you don't have to worry about it. And that problem instantly goes away. So yes. it's impossible to not collect data in our day and age. It's there's no way that a school can't collect data. It's just not going to work. So think hard about what data you do have to collect and then make good decisions about whose hands you entrust that to. Very well said. Great note to close the show on Jethro. All righty. Hey folks, that brings to an end 
this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest, question, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating. We appreciate having you with us and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.